Alright, y'all tired? Yeah. Yes? Y'all had like three hours? Terrible tease. All right, y'all took the personality test stuff. Y'all took the personality test stuff this afternoon, right? Who had the existential dilemma that I always have, which is you start not knowing your, the answer to these questions because you don't know if you're describing the person you want to be or the person you are. You know what I'm talking about? And then, like, when you're done, you're like, I, I don't trust this test at all. I don't trust my answers. I don't know who I am. I have less sense of self now than I did before I started taking the test. Did y'all have this? And then I asked, I asked Paul, I was like, what does it mean if you take these personality tests all, all the time? You never score the same way. You don't know who you, who you are. And you never remember what your like, Myers-Briggs profile is. And he goes, oh, that means you're ESTP. I was like, oh, well, there you go. I needed somebody else. Um, did anybody have that moment where they were like, uh, they read your personality profile after you took the test? And it sounded really bad. Yeah. You're like, I don't think I can be a Christian and have this personality. You know? I actually had that happen to me my first week of RUF training. When they get all the new campus ministers together, we take these personality tests. And this guy who administers the test, I'm from Alabama, he's from Mississippi. His name is Bebo. We still name people Bebo in the South. Um, take that, run with it, name your children Bebo. It's awesome. Um, and we were going around the room, and he was going through everybody's personality in front of everybody. And he came to mine, and he pulled up the test, and he goes, now, now this one, I wouldn't want my daughter to date somebody like this. And that's literally, yeah. Yeah, so I'm still recovering from that. And that was, you know, 10 years ago, still talking to the counselor about it. Um, anyways, my name's Britton Wood. I didn't give you my name. Uh, I'm originally from Alabama. I did RUF at the University of South Carolina for the last four years, uh, and then last July I moved to Stanford and have been in the Bay Area doing RUF at Stanford. Up there, um, Stanford and the University of South Carolina have absolutely nothing in common. Um, nothing I learned at South Carolina has been helpful there. Ryan and I have been good friends for uh, over 10 years, um, very good friends. The kind of most important thing you need to know about me, the thing I will be identified by, the thing you will remember me by, six months from now you won't remember my name, where I'm from, or anything I said, but you'll remember this. I am commonly known to most of the people who come into my uh, acquaintance as the twin guy. Uh, I have two seven-year-old daughters that are identical twin girls and two five-year-old daughters that are identical twin girls. Uh, my wife is a superhero. Um, she, do they what? No, it's actually pretty fun. The big girls have blonde, curly hair and blue eyes. They actually look a lot like me when my hair gets long. It's curly. They look exactly like my little sister. Um, and then the little girls look just like my wife, and which is brown, straight hair, brown eyes. Um, so, but they are identical, identical. We have, they are color-coded. Mary Walton always wears white of the seven-year-olds, and Shelby always wears purple. Um, and then in the five-year-olds, actually, one of my daughter's name is Britton, which is pretty fun. Britton always wears blue, and um, Catherine always wears pink. So 
We live a confusing life. I do get my children confused. It's some of the lowest moments for me in my life when I still don't recognize my own twin daughters, but they're forgiving. Um, anyways, that's a little bit about me. Um, this week, kind of to jump into what we're going to be doing tonight, Ryan introduced the theme. It's on your t-shirts. It's on the thing. Uh, it's fit for service. And Ryan talked this morning about some of the myths of servant leadership that we're prone to believe. And this morning, his was an important one. It's the myth that we're prone to believe is, hey, you have ability, and that's, uh, that's what makes you a leader. And that's what makes you, that gives you the capacity to be a leader, uh, a servant leader in the church. And what we're looking at tonight, and, uh, and this is, we're doing a little bit of good cop, bad cop today, and I, I get to be the bad cop tonight, um, but, but there's good, there's light. Um, this one, the myth we're going to look at tonight is this. Uh, the myth we're prone to believe is your service and your leadership is going to have impact if you become a person of significance and influence. Shorter terms, servant leadership is going to be awesome. That's the myth we're going to look at tonight, that servant leadership is going to be awesome. And in order to get there, we're going to look at two guys who were self-identified leaders uh, and, and how they thought about leadership and spoke with Jesus about leadership. These guys were James and John in Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. I'll give you a second to get there. They are on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus is heading towards the cross. These guys have been in a small group Bible study taught by God for over two years, right? So we're thinking maybe they're starting to track with what's going on here. We at least hope that God's a decent small group Bible study leader, right? And yet we encounter this question about servant leadership. Mark 10, verse 32 through 45, about these guys who are, who are making an impact for the kingdom, who are following Jesus, uh, and they're asking what are logical and natural questions. Verse 32 They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Now we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit uh, spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to him, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you, you must be, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants, James and John. We thank you um, that they ask questions that we have questions about. Uh, We thank you for bringing us here together. And as we sit under your word, dear Lord, I pray if I say anything foolish, we would forget it. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us truth and what goes on here for the next couple of minutes. Be with us. Work in our hearts, dear Jesus. I need you. We need you to attend to your word now and attend to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, there is, there's, you know, Ryan talked this morning about how ability doesn't necessarily make you a leader. And, uh, but there's one area in life which... I would say I have decent ability, um, pretty decent skill set. It's, it's an area in which I cherish. Uh, the world comes alive when I engage in it. Uh, if, if, you, if you were a leader by having ability, I am a leader in this field. And uh, what this field is, you're probably not there yet. Maybe you'll get there in a couple of years. Um, everything in the world feels right. I feel like my being is doing everything it was intended to do. When my hand is on the wheel of a ski boat and I'm pulling people on a tube. I'm past, y'all are still at the tubing stage, is my guess, and the tubing stage is great. Okay, one day you're going to pull somebody on the tube and, like, it's ten times more electric. It's like, it's adrenaline everywhere. Like, it's just, you're drunk with power and control. Like, I love tubing. I love pulling people on the tube. And, I, and, and it's been a year hiatus until last week. Hadn't been around uh, a boat, and last week we were at the lake, and I, I finally had the chance to pull some people on the tube. And uh, at South Carolina, I took students to our lake house, to my parents' lake house down in Alabama periodically, and it became legendary at South Carolina. I mean, I made 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old guys bleed <laughs> regularly on the tube. That, and I, y'all mind listening to another word, another word I say? I have no remorse about that. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, it was... this. It, is YouTube worthy. In some ways, I've been irresponsible with my life by not videotaping this stuff and putting it on YouTube, and for that, I apologize. Um, there was one, oh man, there's actually one I feel a little bit guilty about. I wore this guy out so bad, it, it, was, it was even slightly dangerous. He was so disoriented when he came off the tube, he, was, he started swimming down, and we couldn't see him because he didn't know where up was, and we had to go, that, okay, that one I actually felt bad about, um, but I'm still a little proud about it, too. Uh, So last week, I finally get back to the ski boat after a year in California, no access to ski boats, and I have the best possible candidate for pulling anybody on the tube, and that is a 65-pound, 8-year-old nephew, right? Because when you, I mean, y'all, y'all are bigger, y'all are kind of, you know, you're becoming adults, and it's harder to get 190 pounds up in the air, it's harder to get 150 pounds up in the air. Dude, you put a 65-pound, 8-year-old on the tube... And, like, we're signing waivers and wearing mouthpieces, you know? Um, so Little Halsey knows me. His, name, his name's John Halsey, Little Halsey. And he's like, Uncle Britton, uh, <laughs> Uncle Britton, 
this is going to be awesome. This is going to be awesome. I said, Halsey, you have no idea how awesome this is going to be. And I go, Halsey, I only have two speeds, crazy and insane. And he goes, okay, that's going to be awesome, Britain, Britain. But Uncle Britton, don't go too fast and don't make the waves too big. And I go, Halsey, I'm going to go real fast and the waves are going to be huge. I only have two speeds, crazy and insane, and that's a rhetorical way of saying I really only do this one way. Okay, Uncle Britton, right? He thinks I'm joking. He thinks I'm joking the whole way in. Okay, Uncle Britton, but just don't go too fast and don't make the waves too big. His mom's riding on the boat as well. Um, And I say, Halsey, this is going to be violent. This is going to be chaos. The waves are going to be huge. My goal is to get you as high as I possibly can. That's what I'm doing. And, and buddy, you weigh 65 pounds. That's not going to be hard. Okay, Uncle Britton, just don't make it too crazy. He gets on the tube, and guess what happens? He falls off. Of course he falls off. Multiple times. It's violent. It's horrible. It's terrifying. It's wonderful. That's the thing about the tube. You know, like, you're like, this is a nightmare, and I love it. You know, and, and and for those of you who are worried right now, like, is, do we need to call child services on this guy? Little, little Halsey didn't bleed. Uh, he was he got off. You know the you know these feelings where like your body's physically affected with like you're you're shot through with nerves and you're scared, but you also know you just had the time of your life. You know what I'm talking about? You're like it's this mixture between terror and delight. That's where little Halsey is after the ride's over, after he comes off. He actually gets back on the tube a couple of times. And he said afterwards, he climbs in the boat, he goes, Uncle Britton, you went too fast and you made the waves too big. And I said, Halsey, what did I tell you I was going to do? Here's my point. Jesus is speaking in stark and clear terms right here. And they're dark terms, and what we're doing is we're nodding our heads. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow Jesus. We're into that. We're in a ser- fit for service. That's what we're here for. We're leaders in the church. Somebody, somebody had to like, write a recommendation for y'all to be here. I saw that. We're nodding our, hairs, our heads saying, yeah, Jesus, we're down with that. Get saved. You know, serve others. Dad self. I'm so down with that. What I want us to see is we're exactly like little Halsey. That we're going, yeah, Jesus, ex- Absolutely. Just don't go too fast and don't make the waves too big. And he's saying, I mean, do you see what he's saying? He's not saying, hey, y'all, I want y'all to follow me, to kind of be a servant leader in my kingdom, um, is to try to be a nice person and hold it together, and, and hopefully things will go well with you. That's not what he's saying. It's what we're dying for him to say. He's not what he's saying. He's being very clear. He's saying the waves are going to be huge, and I'm going to go real fast. And we're just sitting here like a little hossy saying, Okay, Uncle Britton, just don't make the waves too big and don't go too fast. What I want you to see tonight is this. I actually want you to start to feel nervous tonight. I actually want you to begin, I want your heart, I wish I was a better communicator. People who can tell amazing stories can do this kind of stuff. I want your heart to race a little bit because you're starting to actually consider what Jesus is saying. And you start to think, I'm a little bit nervous about following Jesus. If you're starting to feel that thought and entertain that thought, that means you're starting to hear what Jesus is saying right here. That like, whoa, this is not as clean or as easy or as comfortable as I want it to be. Like I knew there were going to be some, there were some sacrifices along the way. Like that's a big Christian word, sacrifice. I'm going to have to do that. Take up your cross, you know. I, yeah, I get that language. Jesus is being clear. He's actually clear all throughout Scripture 
about how costly it will be to serve and lead the way he serves and leads. The waves are going to be huge, and he's going to go real fast. I want you to see that servant leadership is terrifying. And you haven't understood it until you've gotten nervous about it. And there's only one way, there's only one motivation, there's only one power that could get us to do it. And that's what I want to see tonight is what is it going to look like and how do you get the power to do it? What does servant leadership look like and how do you get the power to do it? Here's James and John. They have this nickname they're given earlier in the New Testament, the Sons of Thunder. And when the Bible, okay, when, when God gives you a nickname like Sons of Thunder, that's cool, right? <laughs> the Bible recognizes you as, sons, as the Sons of Thunder. They're known for being bold, for better or for worse. Sometimes it gets them in trouble. Sometimes it's really good. At one point during their ministry, they come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, we preached the gospel in this town. They didn't listen. We think we should call down fire and brimstone on them. I mean, like, these guys are sold out for Jesus. They are sons of thunder. They've earned their nickname. They're go-getters. They're on fire. They are self-identified leaders. And they've been following Jesus for a couple of years now. They're heading to Jerusalem. This is the end of Jesus' ministry with them. They've seen him heal. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him raise people from the dead. They've seen him feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fish. They've seen him calm storms. They've seen Jesus be praised by people. They've seen Jesus be challenged by people, misunderstood by people. They've seen Jesus get rejected by people. And they've bought in. They've seen all this. And they're like, we're on with this Jesus thing. We're following you. And this is at least the third occasion. I read the the first couple of verses, 32 through 34. This is at least the third occasion in which Jesus has said something like this. All right, y'all, we're getting to the end. We're moving towards Jerusalem, and here's what happens next. I get arrested and get killed. That's where this movement, that's where our, 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 our institution is heading. This Jesus thing that you've bought into, the next step in it is me, the head of it, I'm going to get arrested and I'm going to get killed. And it's into that context that James and John ask this question. Hey, Jesus, teacher, will you do for us whatever we ask of you? And Jesus is so patient, and he's so kind. He's so patient, and he's so kind with us. Because we're going to find out, right, this is an idiotic request. Um, but Jesus is so kind, and he says, you know, tell me what you want me to do for you. He's amazing. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, what are they asking for? Y'all, here's what they're asking for. They are saying, I don't really mean this. Don't you think I'm the kind of person who should go to YXL? That's the question. That's the same heart behind the question. It's, it's, nothing, it's nothing more than a natural or logical question for them to be asking at this point. We've been into this. We've been following you for a couple years. We've clearly expressed some boldness, some giftedness for making a difference for you, Jesus. We want to we know who are going to be the leaders for your movement, the people who occupy the important positions of influence in your movement. Okay, their resume does speak for itself. They're saying, like, don't you think we've shown some giftedness? Put us in positions of influence. I, you know, I think we have ministry gifts. We've been through the trials, you know? Put us in the position of significance and power so that we can have an even bigger impact. And of course, how wrong 
and misunderstandings that request. You see, I see other leaders in the church, and you're thinking, like, I want to be like that. You know, that, look at that person. Everybody listens to them. They've garnered so much respect. You know, I want to be in that kind of position with that kind of influence. You know, you're, you're equipped for this. Here you are this week. I thought I was equipped for it. I went to seminary. This is why I went to seminary, because I wanted to preach in front of a lot of people. That's why I went to seminary. I wanted to preach in front of people, and people think that I was dynamic, and they were getting changed by the gospel. So much so that they brought more people. This is why I went to seminary. So much so that I could podcast my sermons, and I could find out it's getting downloaded everywhere. Right? I, I, wanted, I went to seminary because I want to be able to stand here, and I want to be able to penetrate your soul, and for you to walk out and think, like, I'm changed, I'm transformed because that guy, Britton Wood, preached the gospel of Jesus. I want you to meet Jesus, but I want to be the person who gloriously brings him to you. I asked, hey, Jesus, can I be a preacher? Because that would be awesome. Why are we so comfortable asking that question? Why are James and John so comfortable asking that question? And this is, that's really the big question for... The night, that's the big question we all need to grapple with this week. Why are we so comfortable thinking, yeah, fit for service. Tell me how to do it. I'm ready to go. Why, what leads us to believe that sh- we should be comfortable with engaging in that task? How could they be so bold as to make this request? Here's why. It's true of all of us in the room. We're just like James and John. It's because their hearts were so fixated on what they wanted following Jesus to be like, they had this idea of what they thought and wanted following Jesus to be like, that they couldn't hear from Jesus what it was really going to be like. Let me say that again. Their hearts were so fixated on what they wanted following Jesus to be like, their idea of how they think following Jesus was going to go for them, was so fixated on that that they couldn't hear Jesus' clear words about what it was really going to be like. What do you want following Jesus to be like? How have you envisioned your life as a servant leader? Who do you think you need to become? You're in the process of becoming so that you can have an impact for Jesus. Because what James and John thought is what we thought, and it's exactly the way the world thinks. If I become a person of influence, a leader, someone who has the respect of others, somebody of significance, that way I can really make a difference. For our service to reach the world, for Christians to go out and reach the world, man, if we were in positions of influence and significance and garnered respect and people knew who we were, man, that's how we'll change the world, right? What does Jesus say in return? He says this, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism of which I'm baptized? And how do they respond? Like they're still not getting it. They say, we're able. We can do that. We can handle that, Jesus. This is you simply by coming to YXL. This is me by choosing to go to seminary and go to RUF. This is Ryan by choosing to go to seminary and RUF. This is Patrick. This is John by going to seminary and going into ministry. The other leaders in this room, 
we all said, you know what? We read this passage, and although theologically we know we're not supposed to say we are able, we actually thought in our heart of hearts without having probably even being able to be honest with ourselves, we actually thought, you know what, I'm able. I've got some giftedness. Let's do this. Let me tell you about the cup that Jesus is talking about right here. He's saying, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Let me tell you about the cup. The cup he's referring to is language from Isaiah that talks about the cups, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus talks about it elsewhere in the Gospels, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying, when God the Son is praying to God the Father. And here's what God the Son, God the Son, thinks about this cup of wrath. He sweats blood and says, Father, please don't make me drink of this. God the Son, God the Son is terrified of this cup. Do you get that? That's how terrifying it is. It terrifies God the Son. And here's James and John. We're able. Here's me. I'm able. Here's you. You're able. We don't understand anything Jesus is talking about. Do you get that? When Jesus is terrified of this, and we're uh, self-identifying as leaders and thinking, you know, I should become a person of influence. We haven't understood anything. We're a little hazy. Okay, I'm afraid. But it's going to be slow and the waves are going to be small, right? The baptism is another, it's more language of suffering and sorrow and death that Jesus is talking about. And the cup and the baptism They're so seriously painful that God himself sweats blood over the prospect of undergoing them. Our casual attitude towards following Jesus is incomprehensible. How could we be so casual? C.S. Lewis said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy or comfortable. I always knew a bottle of port wine would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Jesus begins now to give us a glimpse of servant leadership. It's not becoming a person of significance and power and influence. Here's the thing. It's not kind of different from that. It's the exact opposite of that. It's not kind of different. It's not like, well, no, it's not about power and influence and significance. It's slightly different. No, no. It's the direct opposite of that. Look at how he describes his approach as utterly and radically not just different but opposite. He's, he's saying this, this is how the world thinks. Those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They have strength and power and authority. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it won't be the same way among my people, among you. Whoever's going to be great among you must be a servant. Y'all, that, that word servant has become so casual and so used that we've lost its import. Uh, its import. A servant is someone whose own needs don't matter. They're given up for the sake of the household. A slave is even a lower level, right? He says that next. Whoever would be the first among you must be the slave of all. A slave is a person who has no rights. Their own interests, their own rights are all given up for the sake of someone else. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. 
He's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about humility and service and dying to our own self-interest. And he's saying we need to have this mind among us, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was the God-man in the form of God, and yet he didn't count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, and he actually made himself nothing, taking the form not just of a man, not of kind of less than a deity, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human, human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Okay, Jesus sat on the throne in heaven. He had legions of angels at his command. His purity and his holiness and his power were so bright that it outshone the sun. So if you want to get an understanding of Jesus' power and influence and significance and glory and might, this will help. Go look at the sun for a little bit tomorrow. Stare at it for five seconds. Count to five, right? Now, close your eyes. As you're regaining your vision, start thinking this. A whole lot more than that. Okay? That's the kind of power and influence that Jesus has. And he changed the world not by using any of it, but by giving it all up. Here's, here's a sad point that's not fun. <laughs> One of the ways the American church has become worldly and the way that we think is that we've stopped believing Jesus on this point. And this is what I mean by it. It very well may, you might be a news and politics person, maybe not. It very well may be the reason that the Christians are having less and less influence in America. It's precisely because we think it's so important to get more and more political power and influence. That's probably the reason we're losing influence. It's because we think that's the key. We need to have more political influence. That's how we're going to change the world. And you know what? We're losing our voice. And we're losing our influence in the culture. Jesus changed the world by giving up power. By becoming a servant. And we've gotten into a nasty habit as, Amer- as the American Christian church of not thinking like Jesus, but actually thinking like the world thinks when we think what we need is a bigger political voice and we need more influence. Then we can change the world. Jesus gave up his political voice, and he gave up his influence, and he gave up his power, and that's how he changed the world. Okay, every government, every empire has always failed. Do you know this? The United States will fail, regardless of how big the economy and the military are. Those worldly tools of guaranteeing success have always failed. You know what's always grown? A movement started by a Jewish beggar that was built on nothing more than dying. It's never had money. It's never had political influence. Where it's had political influence, it's usually gotten very corrupted and things have gone horribly wrong. And it's crossed, it's lasted longer than any nation state ever. The church is based on this, dying and not having influence and serving people. Jesus saying here, you've got to understand what following me and servant leadership looks like. It looks like this. It looks like giving up life, giving up comfort for the sake of others. Here's the application point. Two of them, and they're messy. They're just messy, and they're unpleasant. Here's, I'll put them together in one sentence. We'll talk about both sides. Servant leadership is giving up your dreams so that you can go and live in other people's nightmares. That's what it is, and that ain't fun. It's giving up on your dreams 
so that you can go and live and love and serve in other people's nightmares. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's what he's talking about right here. You got to give up. <laughs> Giving up on our dreams of, of this neatly packaged life of comfort and self-esteem. We can feel good about who we're becoming. And maybe you're even helping some people. <coughs> we think that serving like Jesus is going to be life enriching. We're going to volunteer for something. We're going to go to YXL. We're going to be on a leadership team. We're going to lead a small group. We're going to be involved in the church. And if we do that, life will be well for us. That's servant leadership. And we can, if we do that, we can reasonably expect for things to go decent for us. You know? Can you, can you admit with me that you're like me, because we're both like James and John, and that we have this neat plan of how we expect our life to comfortably go for us if we follow Jesus, even as a leader. And yet servant leadership is dying to your agenda. It's dying to your desire for a manageable life. It's dying to your dreams. And here's what I want, and this is what you want. We want a line, we want a place, we want a category of things about which Jesus is going to say, listen, servant leadership is hard, you're going to have to make some sacrifices at some points, but, but he's not going to ask these things of me. Like, surely he's not going to deprive this stuff from me. Like, there's some essential expectations we should be able to have that, like, we're, yeah, we get it, it's going to be hard, you know? They're going, okay, the ways maybe are going to be a little bit bigger than I thought. But there's some, there's some things, right, that I'll be able to hold on to and rest in. Here's the... We want that line, and I'm not sure it exists. People, following Jesus has cost people their lives. So that's kind of everything right there. It's cost people their health. It's cost people their spouses. It's cost people their children. It's cost people their friends. It's cost people their reputation, their money, their security. It's cost people their house. It's cost people their job. It doesn't seem like anything's off limits. Listen, y'all. Jesus might, things might go well for you, they might not. Jesus just doesn't make a promise on that one. He doesn't promise security or popularity. He doesn't promise romance or comfort for you. He doesn't promise a pain-free or at least pain-light existence. This is what he promises. My grace is sufficient for you. That's what he promises. It could be bad. My grace is sufficient for you. That's his promise. It's not that there's not trials. It's that, no, when there are trials, my grace will be sufficient for you. Right before this in Mark 10 is, is one of the stories about the rich young ruler. And this guy says, Jesus, how do I get into heaven? He says, well, you've got to do everything right. And the guy says, well, I've done everything right. This is the Britain version of the text. Um, and then Jesus says, well, here's one last thing for you to do. Sell everything you have and follow me. Same idea. I don't think any of our dreams are off limits. If you follow Jesus, I'm not sure. I'm not sure any of your dreams are off limits. I'm not sure... I can't make that promise. He doesn't make that promise. It could cost you a lot. It could cost you everything. Jesus is saying this to us. You haven't heard me. Servant leadership is death. It's giving up comfort and convenience and influence and power. It's becoming the least in this world. Following Jesus means this, giving up your life and your dreams. And here's the reason why. This is the second half. It's not just giving it up for the sake of giving it up. Because like him... His people go love on other people in their nightmares. And there's nothing more opposed to you living out your dream for your life. There's nothing more in opposition to that 
than the call to go and live and love in other people's nightmares. That is in opposition to all of our dreams. That's the second half. Give up your dreams so that you can go live in people's nightmares. That Jesus was scared of this. That's how terrifying it is. Because this is what Jesus did for us. He came and lived in our nightmare. He came and became our nightmare. If you're not starting to get terrified, you haven't heard Jesus yet. He's saying the waves are going to be massive. The waves are so big, I'm scared when I came down here and endured them. Servant leadership is not about being SGA president and having a positive influence in your school. I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm just saying, like, I'm just not sure that the heart of servant leadership is it's loving the kid that everybody dismisses. And that's going to cost you something. It's not about being in the worship band. It's not even about having your life together as a moral model for everybody else. And it's, it's definitely not about being president of young Republicans or young Democrats. I'm pretty sure that's nowhere near close to serving leadership. But that's another conversation. You're supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> Thank you. Servant leadership is just not about accomplishing your dreams. Servant leadership is dying as you go and you live in other people's nightmares with them. That's what Jesus does. He gives up comfort and he gives up power and he gives up influence and significance. He gives up his throne and his nice clothes and he comes and lives in our nightmare. That's crossed That's cross-shaped servant leadership. It's death. It's death to safety. It's death to power and recognition and influence. And why? Not for recognition. Not to justify yourself. Not even to feel a sense of reward. But actually because you forgot to keep caring about yourself. You forgot to care about yourself. And you're simply beginning to hate seeing pain and evil and suffering in other people's lives. That's why. You stopped forgetting, you, you really forgot to think about your own safety for a moment, and you just hated seeing someone suffer. That's why. So you went there. Jesus went to serve, whether it's pain, here's the thing, whether it's pain that they're in because it's self-inflicted, whether it's inflicted by others, whether it's social, mental, Physical, moral, spiritual pain, there's all kinds. You see Jesus going into all those different kinds of pain in people's lives. You know, I didn't get into ministry to lose sleep, but that's the main thing that's happened to me since I've come into ministry. I didn't want it. I wasn't aiming for it. It sucks. Don't think I'm a hero. I'm still angry about the fact that I can't sleep anymore. <laughs> I didn't get into ministry to go to jail and get, not me, go to jail and bail out college students who are supposed to be leaders in my group. Like, come on, really? President of my group. Got him out of jail twice, right? I didn't go into ministry to have college students come over to my house all the time and trash it and never say thanks to my wife. I didn't get into ministry for that. I, uh, dude, I got into ministry for hospitality. I wanted y'all to come to my house. I didn't want you to trash it and not even be grateful about it. I didn't get into ministry to have students unload terrible dark stories and y'all i'm not a cry i wasn't a crier until i got into ministry until i got into ministry the only time i ever cried in my life was one episode of buffy the vampire slayer and two episodes of friday night lights okay so all right all right go back in i got into ministry and started hearing people's stories and i've been losing sleep over at night and gone into those stories and my wife has gone into those stories with them and loved him over months and years through these hard stories. 
And I got stories, and you got stories. And after months and years, they ditch us. I didn't get into ministry for that. To put, for me and my wife to give up our dreams and go live in their nightmares, and then have us ditch, have them ditches when we've been in their nightmare with them. I didn't get into ministry so that I could move my family across the country and preach my guts out and have people come into my group and enjoy it and ask a ton of me and ask a ton of my wife and stick around for a semester and a half and then tell me our group's not cool enough, their friends go somewhere else. I didn't get into ministry for that. I'm using these examples, and here's here's what you can't start thinking. You can't start thinking like, oh, that's cool. No, I'm upset about this. I'm still saying, but Jesus, I wanted the waves to be small, and I wanted, you to go to, I wanted you to go slowly. And you made them big. Because what I got into ministry for is, I got into ministry today to teach dynamic, biblical truths to people like you, so that you'll think I'm great, and Jesus is great. I want you to think Jesus is great too, but I, want, I want you to think, man, those were some dynamic, biblical truths Britain brought to us. That's what I got into ministry for. And that's not what's happened. The waves are just bigger. The, let me tell you about Matt Cooper. Two guys at Stanford, Matt Cooper and Josh Nunes. Matt Cooper, I avoided for a semester and a half. Josh Nunes, I chased all year. The reason I avoided Matt Cooper is because he came in our group and he's blind. And he has a dog. And it's just hard to introduce yourself and find something to talk about with a blind person because we can't go to the movies together, we can't play sports together. Doing anything with them requires that you go pick him up, you walk around with him holding his hand to guide him. Um, it's, it's hard to bring other people because we're, we're not, not good at figuring out how to be comfortable around handicapped people. So it's hard to figure out how to bring a group dynamic around him. Uh, when you go out to eat with him, you have to read the menu to him. When you meet other people with him, you have to coach people on how to interact with him. Okay, Matt Cooper's a great guy. I've learned more about Jesus and more about service by being with Matt Cooper. But I avoided him for a semester and a half because I thought, I can't grow my group with Matt Cooper. You know who I can grow my group with? Josh Nunez. You know why? Because Josh Nunez is Andrew Luck's backup, Right? You get the quarterback in your group who's coming. Everybody's coming to your group when you get the quarterback in your group. Josh Nunez, I'm pretty sure, thinks I'm really weird, but I want to be around Josh Nunez, and I chased him. He didn't want to be around me, and I avoided Matt Cooper because I didn't understand anything Jesus was saying right here. Praise Jesus that Matt Cooper kept coming around and pursued me. Praise Jesus that Josh Nunez blew me off. I needed that. Servant leadership is walking through the dark valleys of life with people around you, even when the valley is really dark and really long. And it's going to cost you your dreams to do that. So how do we do it? Because that's a taller, if you're beginning to think, all right, I think the waves are going to be bigger than I thought. How do we do it? What can give us the power to live the most counterintuitive life imaginable? Because we're starting to get afraid, ideally. We're starting to get afraid. And here's the frustrating thing about Scripture. This is terrifying. And you know what the command given most often in Scripture is? Not praise God above all gods or anything like that or love Jesus or love your neighbor. The command that's actually given most often is don't be afraid. This is the most terrifying possible life. And the thing that God tells us more than any other thing to do is don't be afraid. So how do we get there? We get there because Jesus' service to us casts out our fear. 
Jesus gives us the motivation at the end of the passage. He gives his life. He is a servant. He pays the ransom. The key to servant leadership, you can't get there until you're served by God first. Until you see that he's becoming your servant. He did it delightfully. As hard as it was and as painful it was for him, he did it with love. He did it for love. He did it for you. The thing that begins to conquer our fear of following Jesus down this difficult path is his service and his love for us that's shown at the cross. This is what 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. You want to know how to stop being afraid of following Jesus and do these hard things? Perfect love casts out that fear. That's how you stop being afraid. It's hard. It takes time. It takes our whole lives. How is it then? How is it that love casts out fear? Because here's what we think. Here's the way we think we get rid of fear in our life. We're afraid of all these things, and we think if we manage the right set of circumstances, right, if we get enough power and influence to get the certain circumstances around us, we get, uh, then, then we won't be afraid anymore. Because we're afraid all the time because we're afraid circumstances socially, physically, whatever it is, academically, aren't going to go the way we want. So if we exert enough control, have enough influence, and get our circumstances in the right way, then we won't be afraid anymore. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The more control you think you have in your situation, the more terrified you get. The only thing that casts out fear is actually, it doesn't, make, it doesn't feel like it makes sense at first because we all think, oh, the way you get rid of fear is you have control. No, the way fear is cast out is by being loved. It's love that casts out fear because love is more powerful than terror. It is getting and it is exploring and it is being nourished in and it is drink, drinking deeply of the love that will dispel the terror of dying to our dreams and entering into other people's nightmares. Being loved is the only thing that will cast out our fear of following Jesus this way. And Jesus' love is covenantal. That's a good word. You should learn it. You should explore it. Because his love is not like pop culture love. Covenantal love means this. It means binding, never stopping, Always and forever love. And that's the only thing that can remove your fear. If you're loved by Jesus, if you're loved by the king of creation, if he's paid your ransom, if he's restored you to God, if God the Father has adopted you as his son and daughter. If you're loved by him, can you name one thing you should be afraid of? You can't. There's nothing left to fear. God the Father loves you. Here's how, here's how perfect love casts out fear. I have this permission from my wife to tell the story. We feel about following Jesus the way she feels about dancing. Dancing is utterly terrifying to her. She's not a dancer. She feels foolish before the world when she dances. Some of y'all feel that way. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I love to dance. There's one moment in her life where she forgot all her fears about dancing and let loose in front of everybody that knew her for hours. It's on our wedding night. The moment of the highest expression of our love for ourselves, for each other, right? Our wedding. When we publicly declared our covenant love for each other and we were bound together, you know what happened? All her fears disappeared. She danced crazy for a long time in front of everybody she was terrified to dance in front of. Love casts out fear. The only thing that's going to make you fearless it's going to chip away at the fear that we have of the big waves and the high speed. 
It's not going to be getting your life tidy and put together and under control. It's going to be love of Jesus. So here's the question tonight. Are you going to create and, and get comfortable in your mind with a manageable Christianity that doesn't ask too much of you? Or are you willing to consider that the calling to servant leadership is far more daunting than you thought? And the reality is this. If you don't think that Jesus has called you to very much, then you won't look to him very much. But if you get that Jesus is calling you to heavy, terrifying, dark places of service, then you're going to long to get as close to him as you can. Here's who doesn't pray much. Comfortable people. The people who pray a ton and long to be with Jesus are the people who walked out on their own dreams in order to spend their lives serving other people in their nightmares. That's servant leadership. Let's pray. Lord, the challenge is before us, and it's terrifying. I don't like it, even though I talked about it for the last 30 minutes. But there's good news in it, and the good news is that you've served us in the way you've called us to serve You've served us in a way that restores us and actually can even bring joy in that darkness and joy in those nightmares, dear God. Draw us to you. Let's find that we are safe in you, Jesus, to go do risky things for your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.